everybody. You are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today I'm joined by Bobby Jamison. Bobby is an associate pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He has an MDiv and THM from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a PhD in New Testament from the University of Cambridge. Bobby is the author of several books, including Going Public, Why Baptism is Required for Church Membership, The Paradox of Sonship, Christology in the Epistle to the Hebrews, and The Path to Being a pastor, a guide for the aspiring, as well as many more. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, Bobby. Glad to be with you. And today we're going to be talking about the question, why is baptism required for membership? Or why ought baptism be required for membership. Bobby has written about this in his book, Going Public. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. The first question I would like to ask you is, first of all, why should we even care about this topic? In other words, why should someone listen to the rest of this episode? Sure. Well, we should care about uh, the ordinances because Jesus does, because he's the one who instituted them, uh, because he's the one who gave us baptism in the Lord's Supper. And we should care about how baptism and the Lord's Supper relate to church membership because they're part of the way Jesus marks off his people from the world. They're a kind of visible sign of distinction between the church and the world, just like our, our conversation should be distinct, our lifestyle should be distinct. Jesus is also given a kind of formal structure to that distinctness. He's given us a team jersey, uh, which, is, which is basically embodied in baptism in the Lord's Supper. So we should be concerned about who's wearing the team jersey and what it means to wear the team jersey. It would wreak all kind of havoc uh, whoever you're going for for the NBA Finals, you know, it would wreak all kinds of havoc in that t- in that in that uh, series. If you know someone had a jersey they shouldn't, someone's playing for the wrong team, someone comes up with a jersey, you know, it's a, there there are privileges and responsibilities attached to that belonging, and that's what the ordinances mark off and symbolize. Yeah. So the church is it is an organism. It's a people, but it's also organized. There's an organization to the church. And that organization, as it comes from Scripture, actually um, relates to the health of the church. The church is healthier as it follows that organization. Um, yeah, that's right. And, and even um, even the ordinances themselves in how they embody the gospel, our death, burial and resurrection with Jesus in baptism, his cleansing us of our sins and the Lord's Supper, the giving of his body and blood for us, the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, the ordinances mark off the shape of the gospel and the very structure of the church. Hmm. So they bring clarity to what the gospel is, but then also That's by right. extension, clarity to who the gospel people are. And we don't want to blur those boundaries. And as much as we're blurring those boundaries, in some way, we're also blurring the message of the gospel. Um, for right. those who are interested in studying this issue more, um, what would maybe be some resources that they could look into? I know you've written some, maybe some from others. Sure. Well, entry-level works of mine would be two little booklets, Understanding Baptism and Understanding the Lord's Supper. I think those would be pretty helpful. You can read each one in like an hour or less. A much longer book I wrote called Going Public, that's more of a full-blown theology of the ordinances and connecting baptism to church membership. Uh, for a more devotional perspective, just thinking about the importance of the Lord's Supper, Thomas Watson's book, and which is in the Puritan paperback series on the Lord's Supper, is excellent. It's super encouraging. It's super convicting. Um, so I would highly recommend that to church members. 
you know, for a little bit more in-depth treatment as well, there's an edited volume by Tom Schreiner and Sean Wright called Believer's Baptism. That's also a useful resource. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan Lehman, who you've worked with at Nine Marks, uh, he has a little book on church membership as well. So in addition to some of the ones that you've mentioned, you, the, your Understanding Baptism book, I absolutely loved. Um, I, I've read some of the other ones that you've mentioned, but that one in particular I thought was really helpful and would fit in well with this conversation. Appreciate um, it. Thank you. What? So let's begin then um, just by looking at what the Bible's teaching is on church membership. So if we're going to talk about why baptism is required for church membership, first, what do we even mean by church membership according to Scripture? Sure. Well, I'll give you kind of a one-sentence definition, and I'll show how you can get that whole definition from one verse of Scripture. Mm. My one-sentence definition is that church membership is a relationship— of mutual self-conscious commitment in which a Christian submits to uh, and cares for the church and the church affirms and cares for the Christian. So kind of three main points to that. Church membership is a relationship. Uh, It's a relationship of a Christian to the whole church and every member of the church to each other. It's fundamentally a relationship. Sometimes people can think that, you know, the kind of formalities of church membership, whether uh, a class or an interview or keeping a list of members like I keep in my Bible of every member of our church, that these are somehow formalities that sort of distract from or get in the way of how we're really meant to relate together. All those formalities are doing are serving a relationship. It's a relationship of, of a particular kind. It's a relationship based on commitment. So church membership is a relationship. It can take some flexible forms of how do you carry this out and live this out in an eight-member house church in Kyrgyzstan compared with an 800-member downtown city church in Capitol Hill where I pastor. Um, But it's a relationship. Okay, what kind of relationship? It's a relationship of mutual self-conscious commitment, Uh, meaning it's a relationship that goes between each member and every other member. It's the same relationship we have with one another. It's self-conscious in that you can't just accidentally find your way into it. It has to be something you deliberately opt into. Uh, and it, it's a it's a uh, relationship of mutual self-conscious commitment. That is to say, you're pledging yourself. You're promising yourself. You're, you're saying, I will uphold certain responsibilities. I will undertake certain duties. I will bear certain burdens. And in turn, I'm giving my commitment, my pledge, my consent uh, to have those same things done to me. And so from the individual side, you're agreeing to submit to the church. You're, you're recognizing the church's authority over you. You're submitting your life to it. You're saying, I'm going to love and serve these people and submit to their teaching and, and discipline. And the church at the same time is affirming the Christian. They're actually recognizing that Christian's profession of faith. They're saying, as far as we can tell, we think you're a brother or sister in the Lord. So we're going to give you that team jersey. We're going to put Jesus's team jersey on you by recognizing you as a member. And we're going to pledge to care for your, your spiritual and even material well-being like members of a family do. And I think you can get all of the elements of that definition from one verse. So if you tie my hand behind my back, give me only one verse with which to defend all of this. I would say 1 Corinthians 5.12. Now the context is, Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for tolerating a very flagrant sexual immorality and even boasting over their so-called tolerance, which sounds very familiar today. Um, And he's saying you need to remove that person from fellowship. They should not be associated with you. They should not be endorsed by you. They should not be counted as one of you. You need to break off that relationship with them. 
So he's urging them to put the person out of the church in terms of its fellowship. And he says in verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So he's saying, I don't have a role in passing judgment on those who are outside the church, but you all have a responsibility to judge those who are inside. So there's a number of things we see here. One is that the church has an inside and an outside. It's not just kind of like a, a blob of whoever happens to show up on a Sunday and then can kind of drift back into the world uh, in a kind of mist. There's an inside and an outside. The church knows who's on the inside and the outside. Uh, they can distinguish between insiders and outsiders. That's a meaningful category for them. And further, perhaps the most important point, is that there's an opposite obligation. There's an obligation we have toward those who are inside that we don't have toward those who are outside. And that obligation includes oversight and accountability. Basically, if someone's claiming to be a Christian, which is the grounds for inclusion in the church, repentance and faith in Jesus, if they're claiming to follow Jesus, we all together have a responsibility to hold people accountable to actually follow Jesus. And of course, we all sin, we all stumble in many ways, as James 3.1 says, but the key distinction is that Christians are repenting sinners. When we sin, we repent. So if you see a serious sin, something weighty and grave, and if someone's persisting in that, it calls into question whether their faith is really genuine. It calls into question whether they're really walking in the ways of Jesus and actually following him. So the church's responsibility to that person is to hold them accountable, working for their repentance, working for their restoration. But what happens if they persist in it? What happens if there seems to be a clearer and clearer break between what they say and how they actually live. When Paul talks about judgment, and he affirms the role of judgment, he says you are to judge those who are inside. What he means is you're to pronounce judgment in those kind of cases where there's a fundamental break between what someone says and how they live, uh, and you're to do that by excluding them from the church. So, in other words, the reality here, the kind of character of this relationship, that's all present in this one verse. You can't do any of the stuff Paul's talking about if you don't have that kind of committed relationship to each other in the first place. That involves a willing submission to the church's authority. Yeah, so very simply, you can't remove someone from the congregation, from the people, if they haven't belonged in some sense. Um, and so I, I did a sermon on this, um, I can't remember, maybe a year ago or so, um, on, on providing a defense of church membership in which I called it publicly belonging to Christ's people. So this idea yeah. of publicly belonging to his people. Um, and so, uh, church members, if you're, if you're interested in a little bit further development of, of this idea of church membership, um, you can go ahead and look up that sermon. But really it's this idea of church membership. What we mean by that is the idea of a people, uh, that belongs to the church, who constitutes the church, who are its members, uh, literally. And so every church practices church membership, whether they recognize it or not. Every church has a sense of this is, this is who belongs to my church. This is my fellow member. These, these people are, we say these people are part of our church. Now, some churches may do that in a very sloppy way. They may not have a formal membership. It's just sort of assumed. And, and what we're saying is it, it's better to, to actually formalize that and to do that well. Um, to really follow the biblical model of there is a sense of people belonging to a church. And so that's what we mean by church membership is that there is a, the church is a, is a people. It's a family. It's those who worship and follow Jesus. And, and so church membership is basically putting, um, putting public conscious, uh, recognition to who those people are. That's church membership. So now, 
Um, let's look at baptism because we're going to link these two topics. Um, Bobby, can you provide us a basic overview of the Bible's teaching on baptism? You do this in the book Understanding Baptism, a little bit broader, but if you could distill that, um, what is baptism? What does it mean, signify, function, etc.? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll try to do that as brief <laughs> as I can. Um, baptism is literally somebody getting dunked in water. That's what the Greek word means. It means to be immersed. Uh, the physical act is somebody being submerged under the water and brought up again. Now, why would they do that? <laughs> they do that uh, to profess faith in Jesus, to declare publicly that they believe in him, that they belong to him, uh, that they intend to follow and submit to him. Um, so it involves that it involves two parties. There's one doing the baptizing and one being baptized. The one being baptized is proclaiming their faith in Jesus. The one doing the baptism is recognizing that they're affirming that. And normally, wherever you have a church, uh, they're acting on behalf of the church. They're speaking on behalf of the church. Like we talked about the team jersey, they're giving that team jersey in the act of baptism. Baptism is putting on the team Jesus jersey. So you're signing up and saying, I, I mean to play for team Jesus. I believe in him. I intend to follow him. And therefore, I'm committing also to his people uh, because that's inseparable. To become a Christian is to be baptized into his body. Uh, to be united to Christ is to be united to all of Jesus's brothers and sisters. And so baptism is a public profession of faith by means of being immersed in water. Uh, and it's also a church recognizing and affirming that profession and uniting that person uh, to themselves as one of their number. And I'll just go to two passages of scripture to prove those kind of two basic points. The first is Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is something that disciples do to indicate uh, the public beginning of their discipleship, that they're intending to follow Jesus from now on. So that's something that, that, that uh, all believers should do and that only believers should do. Uh, not every professing Christian agrees with that, uh, but I think Scripture's teaching is clear that this is for believers and only for believers because it is itself a, a profession of faith. That's part of its very essence, that you are professing faith by the act of being baptized. And, and what it means to be baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit uh, is to be publicly declared to be the property of the triune God, to be one of his people. Like you put it in terms of that public belonging to Christ's people, baptism is how you initiate that public belonging. It's how you sort of get put out on the shelf and identified as one of one of the people of Jesus. So any, any passerby can see who you belong to. Baptism is marking off the distinction between Christ's people and the world. And that baptized into the name is that sense of authority, of ownership, of identification. You're, you're saying you belong to the triune God. And so the church, by baptizing you, is publicly announcing that belonging. And the way we see this happen in practice, it's very instructive in the book of Acts, right after Jesus's death and resurrection, right after his ascension, Peter preaches the gospel to the whole crowd gathered there at Pentecost. And here's how they respond. At the end of Acts 2, they say, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. And then we read uh, in verse 41, so verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 38 of Acts, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then it goes on and explains how he kept preaching to them. We read in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. 
And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So everybody who received the gospel in faith was baptized. And by that very act, they were added to the growing number of Jesus's disciples. So in a sense, that's all that we mean by church membership. They're being publicly identified as Christ's disciples. Luke is even keeping count. He keeps sort of a running tally throughout these early chapters of Acts. So they know who they are. They know how many they are. And baptism is the means by which they're brought into that number. And I think, you know, for a lot of believers today, um, you might well be familiar with baptism as a personal profession of faith. And that's good. And that's, that's part of the foundation of it. But what people are maybe less familiar with is its connection to the church, that this should be performed by the church on behalf of the authority of the church. And it should have the effect of uniting an individual believer to the church. That's what we see here in this kind of first major act of baptism in the book of Acts. And I think that's meant to be a pattern for us to follow. Yeah. And so we're very familiar, as you said, with oftentimes in American evangelicalism, the idea that baptism is someone's personal profession of faith. It's their it's their going public with their faith, as we oftentimes say. But we typically miss maybe another voice in the conversation, which is the voice of the church, that the church, by applying baptism, by administering baptism, is also saying we recognize you as a believer. And it's actually the initiation initiatory right into the church, such that you can have passages like you mentioned, Acts 2, where those who believe were baptized and added. Baptism is sort of part of this adding. Um, it's, this, it's this right that adds them into the church. Or so that Paul can say in Romans 6, um, when he's talking about, he's answering that question, should we continue in sin because we're saved by grace? And he says, no. And the, and the argument he appeals to is people's baptism. He says, don't you know your baptism? He assumes, in other words, that they've all been baptized. That argument would fall flat if baptism was sort of this optional thing that only certain Christians did, but he assumes it's a reality um, that all believers have participated in. Or in Ephesians 4, we have one faith, one Lord, and he says one baptism, which of course assumes that all have been baptized. So I like to think about it in terms of almost like three voices. Baptism is involving three voices. First of all, it's the voice of the believer. As P Peter says in 1 Peter 3, it, it, baptism is our appeal to God for a clean conscience. It is a demonstration of faith. It's a it's an ex exhibition of our faith, we might say. Um, it's also, I think, probably primary um, in other theological traditions have probably emphasized this better at times than some of our popular uh, contemporary traditions, but it's the voice of God speaking through the symbol that he gave us. It, it, it's the gospel made visible, as we say. And so it's it actually is the promise of the gospel in visible form to us. And then it's also the voice of the church. The third voice, which we very much often miss, is the church also then applying baptism and saying, we believe that these promises of, of being united with Christ in his death and resurrection also apply to you because we see that you have a credible profession of faith. Um, and so that's really what we mean by baptism. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, agree with, I agree with that. Absolutely. And the way I try to put that in my book is just to say that in baptism, the believer speaks to God and the church mm. and the church speaks for God to the individual. Mm. That's good. So let's get into the argument now. So you're all, all three voices. Um, what then is the link between baptism and church membership. And this gets at the heart of the question that we're seeking to answer in this episode. Um, why should we require baptism first before someone becomes a member of a local church? What would be the main arguments for that? 
the main arguments would be, as, as you put it, baptism is where faith goes public. So it's that display or exhibition of your faith. It's actually the means by which you're professing faith and sort of making it available and accessible to other people. That's what Jesus appointed baptism to be. Uh, we can also say that baptism is the means by which you are formally and publicly inaugurated into the new covenant. That is, uh, you, you become a member of the new covenant by faith. Uh, but the new covenant, the way God relates to his people in this age, has a formal or public aspect, uh, and that this is a sign of the covenant. So it's meant to define the visible shape of that covenant community on earth. Uh, so a consequence of that, you could say that baptism is meant to be part of how we recognize one another as Christians. Now, of course, we recognize that through our speech, our profession. I claim to be a follower of Jesus. I confess Jesus as Lord. You also need to recognize that through the substance of somebody's life. Are they actually walking in Jesus's commands? Uh, but there is this formal element we often neglect. It's meant to be somewhat like a passport, you know, where if you want to travel internationally, you have to prove or demonstrate your citizenship in your country of origin. It's not enough to simply say, uh, oh, I'm an American. Uh, you have to show something. There's a kind of formality there for the purpose of recognizing, authenticating, identifying. Baptism plays a role like that in the kingdom on earth, uh, which is expressed in the local church. So we think about that kind of formal recognition, like with a driver's license or like with a debit card. You might really have some money in your account, uh, but if you leave your debit card at home, you can't buy any groceries, you know, if you don't have any cash, right? So you, you might really have the money. Money, but the debit card is the kind of authentication that you have the money and it lets them access that money. So in that sense, baptism is part of how we're meant to recognize who is a Christian and who's not, uh, which means that baptism is actually what brings you into the membership of the church. It's that um, Acts 2.41, they were added to the church or 1 Corinthians 12.13, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Baptism actually brings you into the formal public fellowship of the church. Uh, so in that sense, we can say that baptism is an effective sign of church membership. It actually brings about this new relationship of church membership. It's not like you get baptized and some other special thing has to happen. It's that what's happening in baptism is you are being added into the membership of the church. And so then to turn around and look at the other sign that Jesus has given us, the Lord's Supper, well, that's an ongoing sign. It's a renewal of fellowship. It's a renewal of the covenant. We participate in an ongoing way. You're baptized once, but you take the Lord's Supper many times. And so baptism comes first. Baptism is the means by which you're identified as belonging to the covenant community. And the Lord's Supper is the meal, the family dinner of that covenant community. So there's a natural structure where the one precedes the other. There's a parallel. I do think a legitimate parallel to the old covenant to where in order to celebrate this Passover, all male Israelites had to be circumcised. There was an individual ordinance they had to undergo uh, in order to qualify them to participate in the communal ordinance together. And so uh, quite simply, without baptism, membership doesn't exist. Uh, this is the sign by which we enter that community. This is uh, the door through which we walk into the fellowship of the church before sitting down at the family meal at the Lord's table. So I think especially when, when you think about what it means to actually participate in the Lord's Supper, and that in the Lord's Supper, many are being made one, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, by all celebrating together. We could put that all together and say, as a summary of all this biblical teaching, uh, baptism binds one to many, and the Lord's Supper makes many one. You have mm. to be bound into the many 
before you participate in that sign that makes many one. That's good. So baptism is the initiatory right into the church. And then the Lord's Supper is this ongoing. It's like baptism is what brings you into the family. Um, and, and, and scripture speaks of this adoption language, right? So we use this kind of family metaphor. And then the Lord's Supper is the table. Once you enter into the house, now there's a table and we, we are regularly, the gospel and the gospel people are regularly made visible with the Lord's Supper. And I like the imagery of passport. I've used that before as well. Passports don't make you citizens. So we're not saying that baptism makes someone a believer, but pap, but passports, uh, I just returned from Ethiopia earlier this week, and if I had lost my passport, that doesn't mean I stopped being an American citizen, but I would have a really hard time proving it. Um, and so what do I have to do? I'd have to go to the embassy, and the embassy would probably distribute me a new passport or something like that. I don't know. But the idea here is the church is sort of like the embassy of the kingdom that distributes the passports. We don't make someone a Christian or a believer by baptizing them, but we make it public. We, as you say, give them the team jersey. And so we can look to the fact that, one, throughout the New Testament, baptism is closely linked, overwhelmingly linked to faith and repentance, such that if we want, if we're going to say, yeah, the church is the community of believers, the church is a group of believers, well, then we should then ask the question, who are those believers? And according to scripture, believers are those who are marked off, they're made known to us, as being baptized. And so baptism is a, is a pretty understandable mark, um, and, and prerequisite requirement for who's going to constitute the church. If we say that the church should be made up of believers, it, it's kind of a one to one that then we should say that they ought to be baptized. The church should be made up of those who are baptized. We see the apostolic pattern in Acts 2, those who believe were baptized and added. So we follow the apostolic pattern. But then there's also just the idea of obedience. Um, are we going to bring someone into the church who's sort of actively or even passively disobeying the very first command? As we say, baptism is the, is the first act of obedience, which is true. Um, but if someone's not following even that first act of obedience and submitting to Jesus and his command to be baptized, are we really willing to say, yeah, they should be a part of the church when they're living in willful willful disobedience to Jesus's very first command for us. Um, let's move on then to this question, which I think also can clarify. Um, what does Jesus mean by the church possess- possessing the keys of the kingdom? We get this language in Matthew 16, where after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he says, uh, on this rock, I'll build my church, and 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 he he uses this language of binding and loosing, and then we get that language in Matthew 18 with church discipline, and specifically then the mention of the keys of the kingdom, and understanding the key the keys of the kingdom. Then this concept we see specifically in Matthew, how does that help us understand baptisms, uh, re- baptism as a requirement for membership? This discussion we're having here. Great question. Um, yeah, in Matthew 16 and 18. The Jesus granting the church the keys of the kingdom is, uh, he says it to, to Peter, uh, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then we see that applied by a congregation, by a gathered body of believers in Matthew 18. As we discussed earlier in terms of church discipline, here's a situation where someone sinned against another. Uh, The goal is to bring about their repentance, their restoration. But what happens if they refuse? Jesus commands 
that if someone refuses to repent after multiple appeals, they'd be excluded from the church, treated as an outsider, as he says, a Gentile or a tax collector. And then Jesus uses this language of binding and loosing to describe this act of removing someone from membership. So it has to do with uh, identifying who is a believer and, and identifying who's not publicly to be regarded as a believer. It has to do with either recognizing someone's profession of faith as genuine or refusing to recognize their profession of faith as genuine. It could be somebody says, oh, I follow Jesus, but I don't think he's really Lord. I just think he's a wise teacher. I think he has a, a kind of good, help, helpful rules for living. You say, well, no, 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 no. You might, you might think you believe in Jesus. You might think you're professing Jesus, but that's not the real Jesus. Let us tell you about the real Jesus. That person shouldn't be uh, admitted into membership in the first place. Similarly, if someone is admitted, but then their life proves contrary to their profession, they're to be excluded. And Jesus uses the language of binding and loosing, which he earlier associated with the keys of the kingdom of heaven, to describe the church's authority. So what kind of authority is that? It's an authority to speak for the kingdom of heaven on earth. Uh, like you mentioned, Kirk, it's, um, it's like an embassy. You know, the embassy doesn't make someone a citizen, but they're authorized to declare and to ratify uh, who are the citizens. It's um, the the government, the sort of home government has the authority, but the embassy is given authority to recognize who the citizens are on, on foreign territory. So the church, by being given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, becomes like an embassy of the kingdom of heaven on earth and has an authority to declare who does and does not belong to Jesus as kind of publicly advertising. Who are the people of the gospel and who aren't? What that has to do with baptism is that baptism is the initial and initiating means by which the church exercises the keys of the kingdom. So another verse, another phrase Jesus uses just in the very next verse in Matthew 18, 19 is again, I say to you, if any of you agree on anything about uh, anything, agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That gathering in Jesus's name means gathering in his authority. Just like we saw being baptized into Jesus's name is sort of being baptized into his authority. So the keys of the kingdom connect with baptism in the sense that baptism is how it's an exercise of the church's keys of the kingdom. That's speaking for heaven on earth. And in that sense, the church is also acting a little bit like a judge. A judge does not make anyone guilty or innocent. The judge can only do his or her best to recognize the guilt or innocence of an individual after all the evidence has been presented, after all the arguments have been made, after the jury has deliberated. Um, the judge is declaring a verdict that doesn't create someone's innocence or guilt in an ultimate sense. But what it does have is binding consequences. Mm -hmm. If you're declared, if you're declared innocent, there's no penalties, there's no fine, there's no jail, there's no nothing. If you're declared guilty, well, there may be all sorts of consequences that follow. Similarly, um, the baptism and the Lord's Supper are a church's verdict. Uh, upon an individual believer's profession. If you're baptized, you're welcomed into the family, you're welcome to the Lord's Supper, you have the privileges and the responsibilities of being a member of the body of Christ. Uh, and if that's withheld, there's a certain, you know, you're being, you're being, uh, as it were, shut out uh, outside the front door and kept for further, you know, conversation, discussion, discipling, questioning, whatever it may be. So the church is acting a little bit like a judge in recognizing a given reality. And there are authoritative consequences that follow from that. 
Yeah. And this this conversation right here makes me think of the Belgic Confession, Article 29, which defines the it, it, it serves to ask the question, what is an actual church? What is a true church? And it gives three marks, which I think are really helpful, um, oftentimes exposing some gaps in our contemporary thinking on the church. But the, the and it really fits with basically the exercise of the keys of the kingdom. We exercise the keys of the kingdom. Again, keys are things that lock and unlock. So kind of showing the entryway into the kingdom, right. who are the citizens of this kingdom. Um, first of all, the first mark is the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is what creates the saved people. It's what creates the church. The second mark of a true church is proper administration of the ordinances. So that's the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper are then what make visible that gospel people, the people who have believed. They've been baptized, the initiatory rite, and in the Lord's Supper, the ongoing uh, um, making visible of that church. And then the third mark is discipline. Sort of now that the boundaries have been set, we've have a, we have a saved people through the gospel. We have the boundaries made public through the ordinances. Now church discipline is sort of the thing that polices those boundaries and makes sure that there's integrity to them. And so that's really what we mean by the keys of the kingdom is that Christ has given the church a deputized authority to show who his people are, to declare who his citizens are. And baptism is one of the main ways that the church does that. Um, and so it makes sense then that it would precede membership of saying who actually belongs to that people. Um, let me ask a practical question. We've talked about requiring baptism for membership, but likewise, um, would you require membership for baptism? In other words, would you baptize someone who isn't looking to join the church, but just wants the church to baptize them? Uh, the short answer, the short answer is uh, yes, in the sense of in the normal course of our life as a church, we will only baptize people who are thereby joining the church. We do not baptize people who are not in the process of coming into the membership of the church as if they're totally separate. There, there will need to be a little footnote to that or asterisk in a moment. But just to explain that, um, yeah, we understand that to be baptized is to sign up to obey everything Jesus teaches, just like he says in the Great Commission. And that includes all the one and other commands of local church membership. Uh, and that the the kind of putting on the team jersey, <laughs> if we're putting on the team jersey for somebody in baptism, we expect them to show up and start playing for the team. And so very practically, when a new believer comes to faith in our congregation, they will uh, just kind of go through the membership process. They'll indicate that they need to be baptized. We'll talk about that. Uh, and they'll go through the membership process just like anybody else, uh, except with the added, you know, baptism and preparing a testimony and actually being baptized. So, yeah, we will only baptize people who by that very act, are being baptized into the membership of our local church. Now, the only footnote to that is once in a long while, like once every several years, if that. Uh, you know, we're, we're a highly transient congregation. We have people who leave to go to college or especially leave to go to the military and maybe go on far-flung postings or maybe they're on a ship in the Navy. So there are some circumstances where someone might be genuinely uncertain. Let's say they just came to faith or something like that. They might be genuinely uncertain if it's possible for them to be in a local church for the next little while. They might be on some far-flung posting with the State Department in a Middle Eastern nation where churches are hard to come by. We will very occasionally baptize someone but not bring them into membership, just in recognition. If they're not staying with us, their membership might not be that meaningful. Uh, so that's just a very hard circumstance. That's a that's a, a super yeah. exceptional case. Even then, sometimes we'll baptize somebody into membership and just kind of keep them on our rolls right. while they're living far away. So we just, we just recognize that's a kind of exceptional case. If you're a sort of normal Christian staying put here, you know, you're not, not moving away in five minutes from now. 
Yeah, we understand that embracing those responsibilities of church membership is a normal part of being a Christian. If you have questions or concerns about that, or you're not ready, you're not you're not sure you're ready to sign up for that. Well, that turns out we're having a prior and more basic conversation about what does it mean to be a Christian, right. and do you think you can be a Christian as a lone ranger? Do you think you can be a Christian as a sovereign consumer? Do you think you can be a Christian and kind of set the terms of how you will and won't obey Jesus? Let's talk about all of his specific commandments of one another's in the New Testament, how we're meant to relate to each other as a church. And you tell me how you think you're going to do that if you're not in a meaningfully committed relationship with any local congregation. Right. And our church has the same policy uh, for those who are at Crossway and who are wondering. The, the logic, in other words, I raise that question to just show the logic runs both ways. We're saying that baptism is what marks someone as a believer. And if we want a believer's church, then we want people who have been marked as believers. But then likewise, baptism is an initiatory right into the church. It's not simply a right for individuals to experience, but it's the church sort of uh, marking off its own and bringing people into that community. And so, yeah, we do have an allowance for exceptions. But typically, even then, I would wa- I would probably recommend that someone be under our authority as a local church and seek to transfer that membership at some point so that no one's ever sort of out as a lone ranger sort of um, without the church uh, around them, even from a distance, if, if that's the best they can do. Um, let's think about maybe some pushback that some folks might have. Um, I could see someone saying, you know, the church, um, all it should do as a requirement for membership is salvation. If someone is saved, that's all. If they're a believer, that's all we should require of them. Isn't this sort of being like the Pharisees and adding rules on top of Scripture? Um, how might you respond to that? That's a good question. It's a common question. You know, we could go to Paul's letter to the Galatians, which is his kind of fieriest, spiciest argument against adding anything to faith as a condition of belonging to the new covenant people of God. And you could go to then to a passage like Galatians 3, starting in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So far, so good. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, where does Paul get off putting baptism as the marker of belonging to Jesus? So clearly for Paul, faith and baptism are not opposed Mm -hmm. and are not set against each other the way that this uh, hypothetical objector is doing. Clearly for Paul, amid his most dramatic argument for, you know, justification by faith alone, Paul is not viewing baptism as a work somehow added to faith or somehow contrary to the spirit of faith that is a requirement uh, wrongly imposed upon a believer. I think what's going on is that Paul is viewing baptism as the expression of faith. He's viewing baptism as where faith declares itself. And so he can point to it as a kind of reminder he's taking for granted. He's assuming that all those professing faith were baptized. Uh, so you don't you don't want to have a gospel that's any more restrictive than the Apostle Paul's. You don't want to have a gospel that's also any more loose <laughs> or or sitting loose to uh, Christ's moral moral requirements than the Apostle Paul's. So I think I think what's going on is that baptism is an expression of faith. It simply is how we publicly profess our faith. Right. In, in one sense, it's an act of obedience, uh, but we shouldn't oppose baptism as a work you know, somehow over against faith. Uh, and furthermore, while while faith in Christ, kind of faith and repentance as a as a package deal, 
and baptism as the expression of that faith and repentance. Uh, while that is the sort of um, uh, sole criteria for church membership, faith and repentance expressed in baptism, what that means is someone is also intending to live a life of good works and obey Jesus. Uh, so they're, they're, their initial obedience in baptism is a sign of their intention to obey Jesus in an ongoing way. So I don't think requiring baptism for church membership is doing anything more than, than Paul would have done or that Jesus commands in saying to make, to baptize all disciples. And um, yeah, I think we can leave that one there. Yeah. It might be like when I was coming back from Ethiopia, we could say, uh, the 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 only requirement for me to get back into the states is that I'm a, a U.S. citizen that automatically gains me entrance, and that's true. Um, but how do the customs official know I'm a U.S. citizen? Well, I show them my passport, you know. And so, in the same way, we're not adding, we're not saying that baptism is sort of adding a requirement. That would probably be a a, a bit of a misunderstanding of what we're trying to argue here. Baptism is making visible that requirement of being a believer. And so maybe one final word, how um, might you encourage us if we close with this, how might you encourage us as to why uh, linking baptism and, and membership serves the church in fulfilling her mission? Yeah, I think it helps make it clear that being a Christian is not merely a kind of private devotional stance of affection for Jesus, mm. but it's a matter of public witness public accountability, taking ownership for the people of God and committing yourself to uh, being a part of the people of God so that baptism, by, by requiring baptism for membership and by only baptizing people into membership, what you're doing is you're helping draw the shape of the Christian life and saying part of what it means to be a Christian is to be open about it. Part of what it means to be a Christian mm -hmm. is to be known to other believers, accountable to other believers, and declaring myself as a believer before the world. That's what uh, baptism does. And so in a sense, it's helping us firm up and remember the shape of the Christian life to be Jesus's witnesses uh, from, he, from wherever we are to the ends of the earth. That's really good. Thanks so much for joining us today, Bobby. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks, Kirk. Thanks, Kirk.